0: All right, everybody, we're going to go ahead and uh, get our class started. Let me open us up in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day that you've given this day of rest and gladness in your presence, a, a day of sweet fellowship with the people of God. Lord, we pray that you would encourage us as we come together to magnify your name. We pray, O oh Lord, in this time of instruction this morning that you would help us as we Look at the complexity of our emotional makeup and how we reflect you as image bearers. Lord, we pray that you would give us deeper insight into our own hearts. And we pray that you would teach us how to live to your honor uh, as we reflect upon our emotions. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, as we begin, uh, just a quick recap from last week. And I haven't been with you, I've been in the Enquirer's class the last three weeks. So, um, I'm going to just talk about what the book said, anyway, <laughs> in, the last, uh, in the last lesson. John's not here uh, for me to pick on about it. But um, last week, you had, a, I think, a very brief discussion about the origin of emotions, uh, which may have spilled over into a longer discussion. Uh, but there are basically two views, historically, on the origin of emotions. One would be that emotions emerge from the body, this is a Greek perspective, that they're uh, appetites, we might call, and that they are something to be uh, not only managed, but really kind of put away. This is very similar to stuff that comes up in the book of Corinthians, uh, because Paul is addressing Greek thinking in the book of First Corinthians. But the Greeks viewed the body as bad. Uh, there's a famous phrase called soma, Summa, the body's a tomb. So you got to escape the body. So if emotions are arising from the body, then you want not to have any of those. And that can lead to varying uh, perspectives on how to live a life. If you try to incorporate that into Christianity, you can become an aesthetic where you deny yourself all sense of pleasure uh, and you, you enter into the contemplative life with God and these kind of folks will do things like forbid marriage maybe, or uh, maybe have a, a, a marriage but not really a functioning one, or you, you run off to the desert and you be a monk, uh, or you deny yourself you know, the bodily appetite of food for long periods of time, perpetual virginity. Tell me if y'all have heard this stuff before. I mean, this comes up, right? This wrong perspective on our emotions and how they relate to the body. Another view, and I think a a better perspective, is how our emotions arise. uh, The author used, or the two authors used, the idea of they come from the mind. uh, And then we have to think on them as they manifest themselves outwardly. And we want to kind of a mind over our emotions. Now, there's a lot of biblical truth in that because we're transformed by the renewing of our emotions. Minds And as we think about how God has put us together, uh, we are body and soul. And emotions, I think, seem to arise from the soul rather than finding their root in the body. However, there's a complication. Uh, and I, I want to teach you a concept in view of this complication this morning. Um, and it's this concept. Uh, this is a psycho. Some of you uh, feel that way this morning, don't you? Uh, Psycho uh, and soma, body, uh, this is a big word, psychosomatic, body soul union. We are, as creatures in God's world, a psychosomatic unity. We're a body soul in one. So the complexity of dealing with your emotions, first of all, is to recognize that what's going on in your body affects your soul, and what's going on in your soul affects your body. Let me give you a couple of quick examples about this. Um, if you are having moments of an allergic response to uh, whatever's going on outside, and I, I'm having this in spades right now. I um, <laughs> could scarcely sleep last night as you know sne- waking up, sneezing and weird things. Um, how does that make you feel? Well, if you're anything like me, you get irritable. Uh, you're kind of in this low boil state. <laughs> Of anger, all the time, and fearful, perhaps that this is never going to stop, and that affects you. Your body's having a response. Your emotions are tied into that response, and it's all tangled up. Or maybe you have uh, low blood sugar, and what does your body do when you have low blood sugar? Well, I mean, you could actually faint, but maybe you feel just weak. You're trembling. You can't seem to have control of yourself like normal. You're your mind is fuzzy, you're not thinking clearly. And what kind of emotions does that produce? Anger. Hanger. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, you're, you're hangry. Uh, yeah, it can produce anger. It can produce a lot of fear uh, as these things are tied together. When you're sick, you can feel flat, feel depressed. So it's it's not We can't look at it as kind of a a simplistic idea, this notion of emotions. Oh, they just arise from the body and we just put them away. Oh, they arise from my mind. My mind can just squash emotions. No, you're you're a complicated, a fearful and wonderfully made creature. And these things are related to one another. And you need to think about this as you deal with life, that when hard things are happening in your life, physically, you're going to have difficulty emotionally. When hard things are happening emotionally, it's going to affect the way you feel bodily. You just can't tear these two things apart. So that's just a reminder of some stuff from last week with maybe pushing a little more forward and thinking about how these two things are tied together. Last week also the author wanted to get into that emotions are an expression of what we value. And we can demonstrate our, what we value. He gave a, the, the author gave an example of Going through the the bank tower line and bank towers, I don't know if they're still doing this. They used to, if they saw children in the car, they would give you a lollipop, right? And he talked about one of his children, in particular the craving for the lollipop, and everybody's freaking out until he gets his lollipop, and then the lollipop falls on the ground and it's full of you know car fuzz and who knows what else. And <laughs> what does dad do? Uh, he he sacrifices himself for the well-being of his child and licks it all off and gives it back so that the child is calm again, right? Because it's an expression of what we value. When you value that lollipop above all things, if you get it, you're satisfied. If you don't, you're very upset. We all recognize that as we think about our lives. They express what we value in terms of our love to God uh, or our love for God. So if we, a lot of biblical examples of this, Jesus is, Uh, In the temple, John 2, and he sees all the horrible things going on with money changers, uh, the the mistreating of the house of God and the court of the Gentiles in particular, which was to be a house of prayer. And Jesus gets angry. Uh, He makes a whip and he drives out money changers and he overturns tables. And then the disciples remember a psalm, Psalm 69, uh, zeal for your house consumes me. Why was Jesus so upset? Because this was an assault on what he loved, his father. And it produced zeal in him. So there was an emotion tied to his love for God. We can think of the psalmist also, Psalm 119 talking about rivers of tears flow down my face because your law is not being obeyed. What leads the psalmist into grief? What he values. What does he value? God, above all things, and God's law. And therefore, he's moved to tears when God's law is broken. Uh, We can think about this with joy. Paul, in the book of Philippians, is in prison. And he knows people are trying to cause trouble for him while he's in prison. Some are preaching Christ out of a spirit of rivalry and ambition to cause trouble for Paul. But Paul says, you know... They're doing that for bad motives. Other people are doing it for good motives out of love. But you know what? As long as the gospel is preached, what do I do? I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Why? Because what Paul values is not himself, but God. And therefore, he's able to rejoice in the things that bring honor and glory to God, even if the inner motive is twisted. Uh, It's an expression, these emotions, of our love for others as well as we think about as we, Particularly as we relate to one another, sympathy is a wonderful expression of this. And I think you've looked at this text or at least talked about it a couple of times. When Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus and he encounters um, Mary and Martha, Martha then Mary, uh, how does Jesus respond to the weeping of these women? He's sad. He's sad. He, he weeps. He weeps. He, he sympathizes with them. So when we value others, we enter into the emotion with them, and we don't just weep with those who weep. Hopefully, we also do what? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Now, emotions can also express a love for self, and we can think about this biblically also. Uh, Think about Israel in the wilderness, and when... They're not satisfied with the food that they're eating, even though it's miraculously provided bread and they want something more. They want meat. What emotions emerge from them? Okay, there's a selfishness, but yeah, it's anger. They, They get angry and they begin to attack because they're craving something to be satisfied in their bodies and they value that thing more than they value God. And therefore, they get angry. There could be another scene. Maybe I'll paint for you there. uh, Moses is leading Israel out of Egypt. And they come, of of course, to the edge of the Red Sea. And it's flowing and it's an obstacle. And then Pharaoh's army is coming behind them. And how do you think that they emotionally respond to that situation? Yeah. (laughs) How do we get out of this Uh, fear? Uh, Did you bring us out here to die? Uh, I mean, why, why are we here? What do you, what's going on? And they're afraid. And then Moses tells them, you know, calm down, fear not. Watch what the Lord your God is about to do. But it, the love for self of protection moved them to fear. So um, our emotions express what we value. And we all have this inner struggle of valuing self above God and others or sometimes it being mixed together, we do value God, but we also value self. We want the gospel to be spread, but I don't know if I want to take the risk of sharing the gospel with someone because I don't know how they're going to react to me, and I'm, a sca- I'm scared. So we get these inter, uh, intertwining of uh, things going on with our emotions. And ultimately, this all leads to worship. What we value is really what we worship. What, what's most important to you? Uh, That's the issue of your emotions. Your emotions are responding to what you judge to be important. And what you judge to be important can be something that's really not important or certainly isn't preeminent. And we have to be transformed by the renewing of our mind to bring our minds to see what is the most important or really the whole complex of our being. Bring our heart before what is truly important important, and value our God and His people <clears throat> above all things. Well, that's really all a review, and it leads us to get into our chapter this morning, and it's to talk about complexity, uh, the complexity of emotions. Now, he he's going to use an analogy of getting prepared to paint a room and wanting a certain color, and if you're anything like me, you wonder, who gets to pick the names of these colors? Like, it's just weird colors, and that's not, that's not a color, I don't, I'm just simple, uh, and I'm I'm a guy, uh, so I, I struggle to see the complexity, but it's amazing, the level of complexity, and when you go and you actually watch someone, like, make the color for you, uh, you can see, you know, one color coming in, another color coming in, and certain amounts, and it's this mix. Well, that's very similar to the image he gives on the front of this book. So, we're really now starting to get to the heart of what this book is trying to help us understand. It's to recognize that dealing with our emotions is an issue of great complexity because, as the title of this chapter says, emotions don't come single file. You're not just having one emotion at a particular time. That is, one emotion doesn't exist by itself in a vacuum. Our emotions come to us all jumbled up, which can blind us as to what's really going on. And it can lead us into a struggle to fail to evaluate how I'm actually feeling. Now, maybe there are moments of clarity when someone cuts you off as you're coming across uh, Chapel Hill Road, the overpass, and people are getting off the interstate and on to Chapel Hill Road. I'm not saying this has ever happened to me. But somebody gets over and they don't pay attention if you're there or they really don't care. You can have a moment of clarity that that brings anger, perhaps. Uh, You can have moments of clarity over maybe your um, I'm sure everybody's phone does this. Your phone will will remind you of pictures of the past. And if you want, really, every day you can see, you know, uh, a family album of something or something you took and you can you can go back through and I do this typically because I'm a little bit nostalgic, Uh, and I can go back and see about 10 years ago what was going on, and when I see how, you know, some of my children are still short, but when I see how (laughs) small they really were, um, it it stirs emotions in me, kind of a a sadness, or if you see a picture of someone who's no longer with you and how it, it just immediately comes with clarity that there's grief and sorrow, so we can have moments of clarity in the mix of this kind of jumbled up mess of emotions. But usually the case is we're not just responding to one thing. So this can lead to a couple of responses in us. <clears throat> one of them would be, I have too many emotions going on. You probably don't even think of it that, that clearly. And I, just, I, I, don't, I can't deal with that. I just need to do I just need to, to go forward. Now, if you're brave, how would you describe yourself as struggling with that issue? That you don't really take the time to figure out how you feel, because you just got to go. You got to do. This, uh, this is me. Like, is there anybody else who can, who can relate to that? Um, maybe there's another perspective that some of us have, and uh, you know, giving you two options makes it sound like there are only 2 I'm, necessarily because it's so complex, there'd be lots of responses. But another could be you feel too much or you think you feel too much. And the complexity of your emotions is such that you feel so many things that you just get paralyzed by how you feel. How many of you are like that? Okay. Um, Maybe a slightly, you know, a, a variation of that kind. You feel too much. You have so many things going on, a stirring within you. But you look for a target to blame as to why you're feeling the way that you feel. Does anybody anybody have that problem? Uh, You begin, oh, the reason that I feel angry is because you did that thing. And now I'm going to go after you for making me feel the way that I feel. Um, Just a quick reminder to you all. We use that language. A lot we we talk about someone making me feel a certain way that's really unhelpful uh, in trying to deal with your emotions. <clears throat> you choose the responses that you have now they might they might arise in your body before you realize what's going on in your soul, like that moment of that flash of anger you know when you when you take your dog out to go to the bathroom and it 's raining and it's cold and it won't go not not that. <laughs> The dog won't go. Not that it, this has ever happened to me, <laughs> but you have, that, you have that flash of anger, uh, and it's the dog's fault, <clears throat> right? Uh, we, we all deal with these things. We look for someone else to blame rather than dealing with our emotions. So because of the complexity, we can have tendencies, one, just to plow through, ignore our emotional complex altogether, and just do what we got to do. Or the other, we can, we can feel too much, we can get paralyzed, we've become very introspective, <clears throat> and we're too busy trying to deal with our emotions that we can't seem to do anything. Or we look to, for someone to blame so that we can try to accomplish something. Confusion over our emotions is normal because of how complicated this is. And I I hope that that gives you a little bit of relief, Um, that confusion over dealing with your emotions is normal, because you're not sure why you're feeling the way you're feeling. You're not sure what else is going on. Mixed emotions are actually the right response in a mixed-up world. I want to show you that this is a biblical thing, and that we actually see this in Jesus, I won't have time to examine all these. We see, we can see this in Jesus. We can see it in Moses. We can see it in David. We can see it in Paul. We can see it in the people of God in general. So I'll, I'll try to give you a few examples. <clears throat> if you got your Bible, uh, turn with me to Mark chapter three. I'll probably give you a couple of examples of Jesus. Mark chapter three. And uh, we're going to look at verses 1 to 6. So Jesus has just declared uh, in the end of Mark 2 that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And there's been a controversy over the way Jesus is ruling the Sabbath, in essence, uh, because his disciples are plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees, who are like the uh, undercover operatives, are trying to watch to accuse him of something. Well, that gets worse in our passage. Mark 3, we're told, verse 1, look for the emotions. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, that is to these watching him, Let's think about Jesus. What are the emotions going on here in Jesus? Okay, there's anger and grief. That's part of what's going on. Okay, there's compassion. So tell me about the differences in these. To whom are they targeted, maybe? Or what's going on in Jesus' heart? Can we explain that? I mean, one thing would be the anger of misunderstanding (laughs) the Sabbath. Okay. Okay there I think there's a love for God that produces the anger and grief in one sense because <clears throat> what God requires is not being honored there's a proper not a proper understanding of what the sabbath is the, yes that's there what else okay there's an anger at them and I really think this has something to do with a love for them because it's a grief not only that God is being dishonored but that you don't understand your own sin and you're blind to it. You refuse to see your own problem. So there's, there's a love for them that yet is angry towards them, which is interesting. What else is going on from the compassion side of things? Okay, compassion towards that man in uh, a yearning, of course, to see that man restored and Obviously, that's a love for others, but couldn't it also be a love for God? That wanting to see uh, things put right in God's world and that love produces something towards God. So do you see the complexity here in what's going on? And we could also talk about the complexity of emotions in the Pharisees themselves. Or maybe the complexity of the emotions in the man. Can you imagine being this man? Try to imagine that for a second. He has a withered hand. What does that even mean? It <clears throat> okay, it doesn't work. Um, withered is a good description. It's dry. Uh, so think of the tin man. You, know, you can't move it, right? It, it's, we don't, it's withered up, which suggests some type of uh, deformity with the hand. And it, it doesn't work. There's no fluidity in the hand. How, what do you think that produces in him, this bodily affliction? Despair, desperation, grief, sadness. How long has he been like this? We don't know. But he's a, withered, he's a man, man with a withered hand. He's on a boy with a withered hand. Probably a while. Imagine what's going on when Jesus in the middle of a worship service in the synagogue calls the man to the front. <clears throat> what might be going on in his emotions then? Fear. Uh, Embarrassment of some kind, yeah. Um, people with physical afflictions are often the target of scorn and attack. So you shy away from attention, and then suddenly you're the center of attention. And But Jesus is telling him to do it, so he does. Right? What's going to happen? All kinds of things going on. So do you see how complex the emotional makeup of all these people are here? Let's look at another example of Jesus. Turn forward to Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, and uh, we'll pick up in verse 14, so Jesus is coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, which by the way, would have produced an emotional response in the Lord Jesus, what emotional response might be occurring in Jesus, the God-man, After the transfiguration. Joy. There's a joy set before him. And this is a reminder of the joy set before him. This is actually an encouragement from the Father. The glory that you had with me before the world began is a glory to which you're returning. This is who you are. So there's joy. And Jesus' disciples are asking him questions on the way down the mountain. Um, And he explains to them that You know, the son of man must suffer many things and he's going to be treated with contempt. But he also says in this context, he's going to rise from the dead. Now, they don't get any of it. Right. They don't understand the suffering. They certainly don't understand the resurrection. But what emotions might this produce in Jesus? Okay, grief. We know that Jesus will talk about the distress he has moving towards the cross. So he's got joy, but he's also got grief. And whenever it seizes him, it throws, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. <clears throat> so ask your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Now let me stop there. So we've got joy already. We've got grief in view of the crosses to come. And now what do we have? Frustration. Frustration. Exasperation, exasperation <laughs> frustration. Yeah, it's, an, it's a moment of exasperation. Do you, you recognize that there can be such a thing as holy exasperation? I don't know that any of us have ever experienced that. <clears throat> uh, but there clearly can be. Jesus is exasperated. Over what is he exasperated? Notice the phrase, the how long or phrases. What particular sin does he highlight? Faithlessness. Faithlessness. Unbelief produces exasperation in him. So he's exasperated, which is somewhere between grief and anger, right? Uh, it's an intense response. The pathos of the statement here, the question, <clears> "O <throat> oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long do I have to put up with the unbelief uh, that I'm seeing around me and I'm having, to wa- I'm having to traffic daily in the unbelief that confronts me? Do you, have you ever thought about how difficult that was for the holy, perfect Son of God who always trusts His Father to be faced with people who are always not trusting the Father? Have you all ever been around someone who makes life difficult for you continually? And that's even Jesus' friends? Uh, yeah, so exasperation. But then, what does he say about the boy? The, the last thing that I said. Bring him to me. What's what that telling you? The father has described what's going on with this boy. And Jesus, in his exasperation, doesn't say, Everybody leave. Forget the whole thing. No. Bring him to me. What's that saying about the, emotion, uh, the emotional life of Christ? Okay, yeah, there's still compassion. <clears throat> compassion for uh, a father, concern for a son, compassion for the boy and what's going on with him. So do you see in this very, very short period of time the complexity of emotions in the scene? Now, just for fun, uh, let me pitch a few other of these to you. I won't take you to the text, <clears throat> but let's think about Moses. Moses is on the mountain with God receiving the law. The inscription by the finger of God of the Ten Commandments, the book of the covenant. And then God's people at the foot of the mountain decide, you know, what, whatever has happened to this Moses fellow, we don't know. But Aaron, make, make gods for us. And he does. And then the Lord kind of stops in the middle of conversing with Moses about the law. And said, says something to the effect of, go back down and see your people and what they're doing. Um, And Moses immediately, what what response of Moses do you remember? Maybe I'll say it that way. Okay, anger. When he comes down the mountain, what's he gonna do with the the Ten Commandments? On stone. He's gonna break them. The the covenant's broken. But that's actually not his first emotional response. The Lord begins to tell Moses, I'm going to destroy all that, those people and I'm going to take you and I'm going to make a people with you. And then Moses begins to pray, Lord, what about your covenant? What about your promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob? What, what will the Egyptians say if you brought us out here and you wipe everybody out? That's interesting. Moses, Moses response initially is love for the people and concern for them. So he's angry with them, but he also cares about them. Parents can sure, surely relate. Where you're angry over a particular issue that has manifested a sin in the life of your child, and yet you feel compassionate at the same time. So do you see the complexity? <clears throat> Absolutely. There's a, there's a zeal for the glory of God's name, the faithfulness of God to his covenant. So, yeah, all kinds of things are happening. I'll give you one more of these. Um, David, when he's on the run from Saul, uh, David was, you know, the musician, the sweet psalmist of Israel playing to Saul. Saul tried to hurl a spear at him twice. It's always struck me twice. Uh, If the dude threw a spear at me one time, that'd be enough. I'm out of here. But David sticks around and, and he tries twice. He's on the run. All kinds of things are happening. But David ends up uh, escaping. He goes to see Samuel. He has conversation with Jonathan. He doesn't show up at a feast. He ends up fleeing, and of all places to go, does anybody remember where David goes first? No, I'm sorry. When he gets out of when he gets out of Jerusalem and the Judean area, he goes to Gath, uh, a city of Philistia, which is Goliath's hometown. Like, if there's one place you probably shouldn't go. (laughs) And uh, he's probably thinking, there's one place that Saul will never come after me. But what happens when he gets there? Well, um, he's imprisoned because the king's servants say, hey, this is the guy who we're singing country songs about. You know, (laughs) Saul killed his thousands, but David has tens of thousands. And they arrest him, and they throw him in jail right? And what does David do while he's in prison? He's, he pretends to be crazy. Now, what emotion would motivate you to do that? Fear. And She said wisdom. <laughs> yeah, wisdom. Uh, he, he is afraid. Um, he could be being savvy, but he's, he's crazy enough or acting crazy enough that he's letting spit run out of his mouth and dripping down his beard and scribbling things on the wall. Um, so, you know, the, the king, Achish and Gath, just says, look, I've got enough crazy people in my kingdom. <laughs> Get rid of him. But something else is going on because there are two psalms that are written expressly when David has been seized by the people and is imprisoned. Psalm 56 is one of them. And just listen to the beginning. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long. An attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? It doesn't seem like he has the level of confidence in God like that when he's pretending to be crazy. But there's a mixture of emotion going on. He's terrified and trusting at the same time. Any any of you ever experienced that? Where you have these moments of quick fluctuation between confidence in the Lord and no confidence in the Lord. That's what's going on in David. Emotions are complicated. All right, so what? Again, many more examples we, we could look at to see this. But so what? What should we do? Well, if emotions are this complex, again, it might make us go back to the default setting. Well, forget it. I'm not going to take the time to figure out what I'm feeling because it's too complicated. I'm just going to go do what I'm supposed to do. Why should we not have that response? Well, if we are going to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, y'all keep saying the verse with me, with all of our soul, with all of our Mind, with all of our strength, if we're going to bring the, whole, the totality of our being to, to the Lord in love, then doesn't that necessarily require us to stop and examine how we're feeling? Yes, it absolutely does. Further, uh, Proverbs 4.23, which is a, a good verse to memorize. <clears throat> guard your heart with all diligence, uh, or more literally, guard your heart with all watching, or with all guarding. It's not the same word, but they're synonymous. And even more literally, keep on guarding your heart with all watching, for from it flow the springs of life, or some the well springs of life. What is the author of Proverbs saying? Everything is coming out of your heart. And what's wrong with your heart? Corrupt, desperately wicked, wicked, deceitful, not to be trusted. Uh, uh, You know, Disney is always the whipping boy. Um, Proverbs 28 will say, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. That is, you you have no awareness of God if you're trusting in your heart. Your heart is not trustworthy. And if you're going to guard your heart, continually guard your heart, with all watching, always being vigilant, always attending what's going on in my heart, because out of my heart are coming the wellsprings of life, then I have to stop and examine what is going on in my heart. Now, some of us are simply, frankly, we're just not, what's the right way to say this? We're not contemplative enough as we live our lives to consider what we're feeling, how we're feeling, how that feeling is related to love for God, love to others, love for self. We're just not doing the heart work that we need to do. And whose fault is that? It's ours. We're not taking responsibility to guard our hearts. Well, I don't think when we're when you're told to guard your heart, that it was a suggestion. It was a command. This is the work you have to do. And if you're going to guard your heart, which requires examining your heart, that would necessarily mean, this practical part, that there has to be time that is given to you thinking about what's going on in your heart. Now, some of us here are not very good about thinking about what's going on in our heart. So we might need to bring others in to help us discern what's going on in our heart. Have any of you ever expressed an emotion? Maybe it was, it's usually like this, maybe it's anger and you don't realize that you're angry until someone else told you they were. Or maybe you're fearful and overwhelmed. And you don't realize that you're fearful and overwhelmed until someone else told you that you were because you haven't taken the time to reflect. Yeah, I'm sure many of us have had that experience. So we've got to do the hard work of trying to examine this, this tangled up mess of color <clears throat> and to see what's happening here. Second, why should we do this? <clears throat> well, because we offer ourselves to the Lord. Again, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? But the verse right before that talks about, in view of the mercies of God, offer yourselves to God as a living sacrifice. So you're to present yourself to the Lord in His service. Well, what are you presenting to God? What emotions are you presenting to Him? You might not know all that you're feeling, but shouldn't you go to the Lord and ask Him, to help you understand that you might serve Him as you should. Psalm 139 closes closes with a verse that you probably all know. Uh, Search me and know me. See if there be any wicked or evil way in me. Lord, help me understand myself. Help me discern what's going on. Unveil to me what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking how they all relate together. So this study that we're doing is analyzing that emotions don't come one by one. They come in a tangled up mess. That's normal because we live in a tangled up world. And we have to take the time to analyze our hearts, not because we, we just want to talk about our feelings, <clears throat> but because our feelings are telling us something about what we worship, about where our worship is located. And if we're going to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then we have to do this work that we might love Him as we should. Now, all of us are going to quickly realize we haven't done this. We don't love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And we need to repent But the practical aspect of repentance is doing the searching work. So that's your task as you leave this morning. Now, you won't have time between now and the start of worship to do the heart work that you need to do. But but you really should have done it already this morning. And if you didn't already do it this morning, you should have done it last night. Because when you come to give God your worship, you have to. Be ready to do that. Uh, I I wrote a little article a number of months past um, entitled Preparing Yourself for Worship and use the analogy about priming the pump. You know, when you're going to use a a two-cycle engine in particular, you've got to prime the pump. You you have to do that with your heart. You can't just expect that you're going to go into worship up there, waltz in, and be rejoicing in the goodness of God. You're probably not. Some of us, most of us, are dealing with real hard things, and it's affecting us with sorrow and grief and anger and fear, and we're not ready to worship. We haven't turned to God that we might give Him our worship, and we just expect when the call to worship starts, somehow I'm going to walk in. Well, you're not, and you're going to show evidence of this when you're singing the hymn, and you're Maybe you're singing. I hope you are. You're singing the hymn, and you're saying stuff, but your mind is somewhere else. Or you're going to be in the middle of the sermon, or the scripture reading, or the prayer. Maybe it's even worse than the prayer. And you're a thousand miles away. You have no idea what's being communicated to God. Is that worship? If if you're not with us, no, it's not. So this is really important work, not only for the public worship of God, but for the everyday worship of God that you do. well, We need grace to do this. Again, we need to ask the Lord, search me and know me and see if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, help me to do what pleases you. Well, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come and we praise you that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. We thank you, O Lord, for giving us emotions. And we pray that you would sanctify those emotions, that our love to you might be arising from the depths of our being, that we would not just love you intellectually, but we would give you our affections. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would show us our sin in our emotions and help us to repent and be renewed as we come before you to worship. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.